Today, we're talking about creepy fans traveling hundreds of miles to burn streamers' cars, Fox News officially labeling Biden as a wannabe dictator, or the CEO of Reddit may have just screwed himself, this massive new church crisis, and my guy David being the absolute worst. We're gonna talk about all that and in fact so much more on today's brand new Philip DeFranco show, you daily dive into the news. But first, a quick friendly reminder, as you can see right here, we're officially on a low stock watch on a number of items that we just launched over at beautifulbastard.com this week. So while you can, snag yourself some of the amazing sticker packs, candles, cargo pants, the awesome backpack, as well as some emotionally exhausted embroidered gear. You can click right here or in the description to grab what you want while you can, but that said, this is a news show and we got a lot of news to jump through, so buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. Starting with, this is one of the craziest stories you're going to hear today, because we got to talk about what this 45-year-old Belgian guy named David just did. Because David died with some family members only finding out from his daughters posting on social media, rest in peace, daddy, I will never stop thinking about you, why is life so unfair? And so the day of the funeral arrives, so many people show up, you have extended family there who haven't seen him in a while, mourning his death, and then all of a sudden this helicopter glides and the doors slide open. This flash mob comes out. No, actually, not really. No flash mob. That would have actually been uh, tame. Because what actually happened is that David stepped out like, what up, bitches? With people hugging him and crying him, all of them shocked to see him alive. And as it turns out, David pulled a little stunt. He did a little prank, convinced his relatives that he was dead. He faked his death because he said he felt underappreciated by his relatives, saying he never seems to get invited to anything by them. Which David, yeah, if this is the kind of shit you pull, I wouldn't invite you to things either. But I will say, David did say something that I think people need to hear. It does not excuse him, but people need to hear it. He said, nobody sees me. We all grew apart. That's why I wanted to give them a life lesson and show them that you shouldn't wait until someone is dead to meet up with them. Which if you've watched this show over the last 15 years, that's a common thing we talk about. You know, love who you have while you have them because you never know what's around the corner. Life is to be lived. It is meant to be experienced is meant to be shared. But for David specifically, I think this was not an okay move. Like, I'm glad at the very least his wife and eventually his kids were in on the scheme. But genuinely, this is one of the most batshit crazy things a person could do to people they care about. Which is also why you have many people online right now calling him cruel, saying this was excessive, but also some people kind of enjoying the show. Which is why with this story, I also got to pass the question off to you. Whether you agree or disagree with me, what are your thoughts on this story? And then a fan traveled 700 miles to set a Twitch streamer's car on fire. So this is Kylie, also known as Just Foxy. She has 593,000 followers over on Twitch, and she posted a video explaining this horrifying situation. Saying two weeks ago, while she was on vacation, she gets a call from her mom in the middle of the night. With her mom getting straight to the point and saying, I'm sorry, someone set your car on fire. With Kylie obviously super scared, not only because of her car, but her mom and her animals are inside the house. And she goes to take a look at the security camera footage. I went to look at the cameras and I saw my car in flames. That's the first thing I saw. I just couldn't believe that I was watching my car that I worked so hard for just burn. They're saying not only does she not understand why someone would do this, but also why someone would travel 700 miles to do so. But adding that it could have been worse, right? The cameras caught it in action. You also had the firefighters responding quickly, which she was very grateful for. But most importantly, in addition to the fire not spreading, no one was injured and the guy who did this has been arrested. Still, obviously this whole situation has affected her. We're all traumatized in ways that I would never be able to describe, but I'm just glad everybody is safe. And notably for Kylie, this wasn't the most unexpected thing because she's actually been streaming less and less because she's been dealing with stalker issues over the past year and a half. I've always loved streaming so much, but it's so hard to even feel motivated when 
all of this is happening. Well, obviously, I'm happy that everyone's okay here. It, it, this story ends up being another unfortunate example of the dark side to fame. And understand, I'm not saying you have to suck it up and deal with it, but it is important that we know about it and we talk about it. And then, sometimes it's best if you just shut that little mouth of yours. Just keep that thought in your head. Keep it inside. Doesn't need to get out. Now, that's good general advice, but also specifically for Steve Huffman today. Because if you don't know, one of the biggest websites in the world has a blackout going on right now. Because on Monday, thousands of subreddits went dark in protest of the new pricing plan Reddit is forcing on third-party apps. We're talking 8,000 communities ranging from history to video games to sports, all shutting down. We even saw the likes of huge YouTuber and podcaster Ethan Klein joining in on the blackout, with them notably having a very large and active subreddit and saying on the H3 podcast on Monday, With Spez sticking it to the man, get your posts in now, guys, because we are going dark. Why? Because Spez is a douche. Save changes. Okay. Let me. That's it. It's a private community. Did it work? Hold on. Let we are. Sure it, I, it says on mine. Private community. And well, the plan was reportedly to do this for 48 hours. And my thinking was, is 48 hours going to be enough? Steve Huffman, though, he decided not to keep that thought in his head. With him sending out an internal memo as the CEO of Reddit on Monday, telling employees to block out the noise, saying, quote, like all blowups on Reddit, this one will pass. And so what we saw was many of the communities that planned to come back today after the memo leaked. That changed fast, with moderators calling for an indefinite blackout until Reddit provides an adequate solution in response to the user's demands. And as of recording, moderators from more than 300 subreddits have agreed to hunker down for the long haul. And this including massive communities like Awe and Music with tens of millions of users. And so with all that said, at least for now, you have Huffman saying the blackout has not had, quote, any significant revenue impact so far. But again, this only started on Monday. This is now a developing situation because Huffman, you know, he verbal vomited his way into a game of chicken. So for now, we'll have to wait to see who blinks first. And then we have to talk about religion because have you accepted Jesus into your heart? That's not, that's not the story. Rather, it's that America's largest Protestant denomination is tearing itself apart over three crises right now. Right, you've got the Southern Baptist Convention, or SBC, which has 13 million members and 47,000 churches, with its annual convention in New Orleans happening this week. And while many issues are being discussed, by far the most contentious is about the role of women, because there are estimates that there are more than 1,800 female pastors in SBC churches. Though there are also other estimates that put the number much lower because they exclude positions like children's pastor and women's pastor, which have traditionally found more acceptance because they don't have authority over adult men. And although most Southern Baptists have long believed that pastors should be men, churches with female pastors have still been tolerated. But in recent years, we've seen an ultra-conservative faction pushing to investigate and expel those churches from the SBC, pushing back against what it calls a leftward drift in the SBC on issues like gender, race, and sexuality. And this notably is the repeal of Roe v. Wade has thrown women's rights seemingly back into debate and evangelical politics more firmly fusing with the Republican Party. And in fact, recently the SBC has expelled five churches for having women pastors, with the most notable, largest, and famous being California's Saddleback Megachurch. And in fact, you might have heard of its founding pastor, Rick Warren, known for his sermons and one of the best-selling books in the world, The Purpose Driven Life, with him announcing his retirement from the pulpit after 40 years back in 2021, and he handed over the reins to a husband and wife, with a man taking the role of head pastor and the woman serving as teaching pastor, which involves preaching. So during this week's convention, Saddleback and another church, Fern Creek, appealed their expulsions, with Warren even penning an open letter to all Southern Baptists, noting that the SBC has a long history of letting each congregation interpret scripture in its own way, and also arguing that it's supposed to be an association, not a hierarchical organization. And last night, Warren getting just three minutes to make his case in front of over 12,000 delegates. If doctrinal disagreements between Baptists are considered sin, we all get kicked out. Now, the Baptist faith and message is 4,032 words. Saddleback disagrees with one word. 
That's 99.9999999999 in agreement. Isn't that close enough? And if you were moved by or agreed with his words, uh, you were very likely not in that room. Because despite his plea, a whopping 90% of the delegates shot down both appeals today. And going even further, later in the day today, they're set to vote on a proposal stating that a church can only be Southern Baptist if it does not affirm, appoint, or employ a woman as a pastor of any kind. Because while women are already barred from being pastors, that rule hasn't always been strictly enforced. So you had the SBC's right wing arguing that needs to be clearer. Though it is also important to know that the extreme conservatives don't have a total stranglehold on the SBC. Right, last year, delegates overwhelmingly voted for their new president, Bart Barber, a preacher in rural Texas over his ultra-conservative rival. Though notably with all this, you have many members blaming the church's inflexibility on certain social issues for its second crisis. They have lost more than 3 million members since 2006, and reportedly membership shrinking by another half a million in 2022, the largest dip in more than a century. And this largely because you have older people dying off and younger people aren't replacing them in high enough numbers. Also, regarding last year's drop-off, you have some attributing that to SBC's third crisis, rampant sexual abuse. Because last year, the convention released a list of alleged church-related sexual abusers that it kept hidden for over a decade. That list, including 600 people being named, including pastors, denominational workers, ministry employees, and volunteers. Also, very key thing, this did not just include credibly accused people, but those who have been convicted or confessed to abuse as well. And very notably, that list came out just a week after another report detailing how victims and other concerned people had been contacting the SBC's administrative arm about it for nearly 20 years. But reportedly, those calls and emails were only to be met time and time again with resistance, stonewalling, and even outright hostility. And actually around all this, in August, we learned that the Department of Justice opened an investigation into the SBC. And so that's why it's important we talked about all of that, because yes, this debate over female pastors, it matters. You also have some worrying that the panic about the supposed wokeness in the church just distracts from the very, very real problems plaguing Southern Baptists. So I will say to anyone thinking about leaving their religion, philontology welcomes you. We don't have many rules. Most of it is mind your business. Or if someone is something or someone does something and it's not hurting anybody else, peace be with you. And also free ice cream on Tuesdays, which I know it's Wednesday, you missed it, but six days from now, ice cream time. Did this little bit at the end alleviate how fucking heavy this story ended up getting? No? Okay, moving on. And then we just got a huge update on the Alec Baldwin Rust shooting. It was late 2021 when cinematographer Helena Hudgens was fatally shot on the movie set, Alec Baldwin holding the gun. There was a lot of blame being thrown around, a lot of finger pointing. And now, according to a recent filing from prosecutors, the armorer that was on the set of Rust was likely hung over that day, with witnesses claiming that the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, was drinking heavily and smoking marijuana in the evenings during the shootings of Rust. And the filing going on to say, it is likely that defendant Gutierrez was hung over when she inserted a live bullet into a gun that she knew was going to be used at some point by an actor while filming a shooting scene with other actors and crew members. With that gun and bullet specifically going to Alec Baldwin, who was handling the weapon when it fired, and remember, it didn't just kill Hutchins, but also injured director Joel Souza. Now, for her part, Gutierrez-Reed will be pleading not guilty to two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Her lawyer also slamming the charges against her, accusing prosecutors of mishandling the case, and claiming the case is so weak that they are now resorting to character assassination tactics to further taint the jury pool, and claiming the investigation and prosecution has not been about seeking justice. For them, it's been about finding a convenient scapegoat. Also notably with all this, as far as how things stand with Alec Baldwin, you might remember the prosecutors dropped the charges against him earlier this year. That also doesn't mean he's completely out of this, because prosecutors will decide if they want to recharge him sometime over the next two months. And then, as a lot of y'all know, I've been habit stacking by making small changes to my lifestyle. And every little bit, it goes a long way. For example, last year I started by cutting back on sugar, increasing fiber. Next, thanks to the fantastic sponsor of today's show, Seeds DSO1, which by the way, I keep here at my desk. I really started thinking about my gut health and how that pertains to my general health. And so for the past year, I've started every morning with a tall glass of water to wash it down. Which boom, even that, another small and intentional habit. And y'all, I gotta say, after a year of taking Seeds DSO1 Daily Symbiotic, it's the real deal. It's provided me with healthy regularity, eased bloating, and it doesn't stop there. Because Seed also promotes heart health, immune support, and more. Plainly put, probiotics are a science. It's important how they're developed, manufactured, and vetted with scientific rigor and precision, and Seed is the only probiotic I trust. And thanks to Seed's Viacap delivery technology, a unique capsule and capsule 
special design. The probiotic strains actually make it into your colon with an average 100% survivability rate. And best of all, Seed is offering you 25% off your first month. You'll receive this 30-day supply, refillable glass jar, and travel vial. And after that, they send sustainably packaged refills. So go to Seed.com slash DeFranco and just use code DeFranco at checkout to get 25% off your first order of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic Plus free shipping. And then, Russia's getting desperate in its war with Ukraine, with its latest gamble being deploying tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Because Putin has threatened to do this for months, but according to his puppet in Belarus, it's now officially begun. With Lukashenko even threatening to order the use of the weapons if his country faces any aggression. Though, that likely a hollow threat, because that would require direct orders and codes for Moscow to actually be used. So if Putin doesn't want to use them, they're not moving. That being said, Lukashenko still has to look like a strong man and equal to Putin, so he told locals that he demanded the nukes. Ooh, such strong man. Also, what's interesting is that pushing these nukes closer to NATO is both provocative while also changing nothing. Right? It's provocative because it puts quick deployment nuclear weapons very close to NATO allies in Europe. But it also really doesn't change much because for decades, Russia has had the capability to launch a nuke and hit anywhere in the world within 40 minutes. But notably, this is also just one of a few threats Putin's making in his desperation. The other big one is suggesting that he'll cancel the Ukraine grain deal. Right? Because under a deal brokered by the UN, Russia agreed to let Ukrainian grain shipments leave their Black Sea ports. And in return, the UN would also help Russian food and fertilizer exports, something that Putin claims hasn't been honored. Claiming, unfortunately, we were once again cheated. Nothing was done in terms of liberalizing the supply of our grain to foreign markets. Which, while grain is not something that is actively on most people's mind, a very big deal. Right? If that deal is canceled, we'll likely see a sharp spike in grain prices around the world. Not to mention the possible starvation in many countries that heavily rely on Ukrainian grain. And really, we only need to look at the start of the war to see how serious the situation is. Also, speaking of the situation generally, because it is an active war, there's a million updates to talk about, such as accusations that Russia blew up another dam to slow down Ukraine's advances. Which, actually, there, it seems that Ukraine's making progress, although, of course, you have Putin claiming the counteroffensive has failed. And taking into account the real fog of war here, we likely won't know what's actually happened until weeks or months from now. But that said, the biggest news here may actually be just on the horizon if Ukrainian intelligence is to be believed. Because they claim that Russia's planning on destroying chemical facilities that'll make the Chernobyl disaster look small. Which hopefully, that does not happen, but we're talking about Putin's Russia. Whether it be committing war crimes or throwing more and more of his country's children into the wood chipper that is this war, he's willing to do it. And then, we've got two big questions around AI in Congress right now. One, is Congress going to do anything to regulate AI? And two, do the olds in Congress even know what AI is? So historically, Congress has shown us uh, they don't really need to understand a thing to make legislation about it. But what we are seeing is today, Republican Senator Josh Hawley and Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal introducing a bipartisan bill aimed at exercising some form of control over the rapidly developing technologies. And the proposal is actually really interesting because, as I always say, the AI that we see today, it's the worst it'll ever be. It's just going to keep improving and getting better from here. But Hawley and Blumenthal's plan targets AI in a way that accounts for the ever-evolving nature of the tech, where specifically the legislation will clarify that generative AI is not covered under the fundamental liability law that governs the internet, Section 230, right, with 230 being the landmark and fundamental law that makes it so that tech companies can't be held legally responsible for third-party content on their platforms, aka social media sites can't be sued every time someone posts something that can be considered illegal. And so what this legislation would do is add a clause to Section 230 that removes immunity from AI companies in both civil and criminal cases involving generative AI, which means that Americans could sue those companies directly. And as far as what they say this would look like, in a press release, you had Hawley providing a specific example with deepfakes, explaining ordinary people can now suffer life-destroying consequences for saying things they never said or doing things they never would. Companies complicit in this process should be held accountable in court, which would be an absolutely massive move and crackdown. And so with that legislation and that thinking, of course, I'd love to know your thoughts on it. We're going to have to wait to see if it gets support from other members of Congress. Also, what does the pushback look like from AI companies? But no matter what, the fact that this is even being talked about is very significant. And notably, this comes as many different committees in both chambers of Congress have recently been holding hearings about AI. I mean, just yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law holding a hearing about AI and its impacts on human rights. And instead of just talking a bunch of technical jargon with experts, you had the panel bringing the issue down to the human level. With them hearing powerful testimony from an Arizona mom by the name of Jennifer DeStefano. 
was the victim of an insanely horrible scam where the scammers used AI to clone the voice of her 15-year-old daughter, Brianna, and staged a fake kidnapping plot. But they're describing how she was picking up her younger daughter from a dance class when she got this call from an unknown number. She decided to answer it, thinking, hey, maybe it's the hospital, maybe it's a doctor. And when she answered, it was Brianna sobbing and crying, saying, Mom, at first I thought nothing of it and casually asked her what happened. Brianna continued with, Mom, I messed up, crying and sobbing continually. Not thinking twice, I asked her again, okay, what happened? Suddenly a man's voice barked at her, lay down, put your head back. At that moment, I started to panic. My concern escalated as I demanded to know what was going on, but nothing could have prepared me for her response that she gave me next. Mom, these bad men have me, help me, help me, help me. She begged and pleaded as the phone was taken from her. A threatening and vulgar man took the call over. Listen here, I have your daughter. You call anybody, you call the police, I'm gonna pop her stomach so full of drugs, I'm gonna have my way with her. I'm gonna drop her in Mexico and you'll never see your daughter again. With DeStefano putting the call on mute, she started screaming to the other parents at the studio who called 911. Meanwhile, she stayed on the phone with the caller who at first demanded a million dollars, but then later reduced that number to 50,000 in cash. DeStefano explaining that a parent who had called 911 came back and told her that the police were familiar with an AI scam that was happening. But even then, she couldn't break this feeling of my daughter's in trouble. But I didn't process that. It wasn't just her voice. It was her cries. It was her sobs. And so this thing got her so locked in, she went back to negotiating the ransom. And it wasn't until one of the other parents got a hold of her husband who had found that her daughter was resting safely in bed. But even then, she didn't believe it until she actually spoke to her daughter. And so you have this mom who went through one of the worst things you can imagine, and she's stuck in this limbo. Right? Because she just went through this, she then reports the call to the police, but then they tell her it was just a prank call and they can't do anything because no crime was actually committed. Right? No one was actually kidnapped. No money had been transferred. With her and others thinking it's absolutely crazy that there's nothing to be done. Right? This is a situation that's caused her trauma for months and has impacted the lives of so many others. And ultimately calling on Congress to take immediate action to regulate the space. And you know, it really feels like less of a question of should something be done because something should be done. It's more, can Congress actually legislate on something that is constantly evolving like this? And then Illinois just became the first state to ban book bans with a law which takes effect next year, mandating that all public libraries in the state either adopt the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights or write their own similar version of the pledge, which states materials should not be proscribed or removed because of partisan or doctrinal disapproval. And very key, any public library that fails to do this will risk losing state funding. And in remarks after signing the bill, you had Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker taking aim at Republican efforts to ban books, saying, while certain hypocritical governors are banning books written by LGBTQ authors, but then claiming censorship when the media fact checks them, we are showing the nation what it really looks like to stand up for liberty. Because all this notably comes as banning books has become a major culture war issue for Republicans. In fact, so much so, according to a March report by the American Library Association, the unparalleled efforts to ban or censor books hit a record high in 2022, nearly doubling from just a year Year before. And the organization specifically noting that the vast majority were written by or about members of the LGBTQIA community and people of color. And notably, in the near future, this won't be just Illinois, but possibly other states following suit. In fact, there's another similar bill trying to make its way through the legislature in New Jersey right now. And then, you may have seen Fox News trending with the news in quotes today. And that's not because the network had to legally change its name to that as part of the massive settlement with Dominion Voting Systems, but rather because there was a massive controversy around their Chiron last night. But they also weren't the only one getting hit last night. Let me explain. Okay, so Trump, yesterday, right, he was arraigned on federal charges. And afterward, later that night, Trump gives a speech at his New Jersey golf club. And during this speech, he did Trump stuff. He rambled on and on forever, saying all the bullshit that you'd expect him to say. I did everything right, and they indicted me. I mean, he did nothing wrong, that he was a victim of persecution, calling Biden corrupt, even at one point describing his indictment as the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of the country. And it very much appeared that Fox News agreed with him, because toward the end of his remarks, a network moved to a split screen of a separate speech Biden was giving at the White House and ran the Chiron. And in case you haven't already seen it, no, this is not fake. I'm not kidding. Wannabe dictator speaks at the 
White House after having his political rival arrested, without going viral and receiving backlash online, including from experts who said this is extreme even for Fox News. Now, Fox, for its part, responded to the situation by telling other media outlets that the Chiron was taken down immediately and was addressed, but also did not elaborate, which it feels like they should because that, that wasn't like a slip of a button. That was a very specific and insane statement. But also on the opposite side, there was another Chiron that people were pissed off about. With PBS News putting on the screen during Trump's speech, experts warned that inflammatory rhetoric from elected officials or people in power can prompt individual actors to commit acts of violence. Which, you know, I see, I go, yeah, that seems fact-based. Anyone with half a brain cell goes, yes. But a certain other group of people popped the fuck off and called for PBS to be defunded because of it. But again, I think a pretty fucking fair warning, especially given that, I don't know, Trump gave that speech at one time and it seemed to incite a literal insurrection. But also around this news, you had people commenting about, should we even show this speech? With CNN news anchor Jake Tapper explaining to viewers why the network didn't play the speech, saying, frankly, Trump says a lot of things that are not true and sometimes potentially dangerous. And MSNBC's Rachel Maddow echoing that and telling her audience, we are here to bring you the news. It hurts our ability to do that if we live broadcast what we fully expect in advance to be a litany of lies and false accusations, no matter who says them. So yeah, fun times to be living in. And ultimately, that brings us to the end of today's daily dive into the news. As always, thank you for being a part of the DeFranco Nation, or whatever you want to call it, I don't know. <laughs> but hey, my name's Philip DeFranco, you've just been filled in, I love yo faces, and I'll see you tomorrow.